Jesus paid the price of our redemption with his blood. Praise God that we have a Savior in Jesus. As we continue worship tonight, if you'd like to follow along, you can open your Bibles to John 11. This is, of course, the resurrection of Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus. John 11, and we're going to be looking at 1 through 46. It's on page 897 of the ESD Pew Bibles. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Heavenly Father, as always, we come before your word tonight. We ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to understand the meaning of this passage. Help us to hear what you would have to say to us and help us to apply it. Take the truths that you teach us and implement them into our life, our daily living. We pray this in faith and in Jesus' name, amen. There was a husband and wife who'd been married for several years, and for the first time in their marriage, they were going to be experiencing a long period of separation, and it was a work thing. And it couldn't be avoided, they didn't like it, but they were just going to roll with it. And it was a little under three months, and because of the distance and and the logistics and the money and and the kids and everything, they just decided they weren't going to try to make... Uh, any any visits in between. They were just going to make do with phone calls and, and video chats and Zoom calls and things like that. So the day arrived and they said their goodbyes and, and the husband took off. And during the first week when they were video chatting, uh, the, the wife noticed that he wasn't shaving. And uh, she didn't really say too much about it. Who knows, maybe he just didn't have time. After all, he was busy at work. And, um, Maybe that's what it was about. And then a few phone calls later, the next couple of times, she noticed that it was still there. And so she said, um, what's that on your face? And he said, well, it's, it's a beard. Yeah, I forgot to tell you. I decided I was going to grow my beard out. I haven't done this in several years. And what do you think? And she said, oh, I'm not sure yet. He said, well, I kind of like it. And then time went on, and it it was still there. And finally, about a week or so before they were to reunite, she told him, half-joking, half-serious, you're shaving that off before you come home, right? He said, well, I kind of wanted to keep it. And so they they argued for a little bit. Finally, the compromise was reached. He would come home wearing the beard, and if she still didn't like it in person, then he would shave it completely off. So he came home, and she didn't like it. So, true to his word, he went to the the bathroom, and he started shaving it off, but he thought, you know what, I'll just trim it. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe she doesn't like it because it's all scraggly. So he trimmed it up and came out, and she said, no, that's not it. So he went back in, and he took it way down to just, you know, more than a five o'clock shadow, but, you know, just kind of that rugged stubble. Maybe she was into that look, and... She said, no, that's not it. She said, anything less than all the way is still part way. And you told me you would shave it all the way off. And so he went back in, he shaved it all the way off, and he got it nice and, nice and clean and smooth. And, and she 
liked that a lot better. She rewarded him with, a, with snuggling her cheek up next to him and uh, giving him a kiss. Does our faith go all the way? Because anything less than all the way is only part way. Do we, do we have part way faith or do we have all the way faith? And maybe we're not sure how to define those things. Let's tackle an easier question. Does Jesus expect his followers to have part way faith or all the way faith? I think the answer is pretty obvious there. As we look at John chapter 11 tonight, which is traditionally an Easter passage, or, or at least a resurrection passage, and it is, but I think there's something here for us on Thanksgiving regarding faith. Jesus expects his followers to believe all the way, and that's going to come across nice and strong in this passage. So I'm going to read all of 1 through 46, but then we're going to go verse by verse through just a portion of that. So here's John 11, starting at verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of the world, of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met with him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing 
that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved, again came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that they have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. I want to spend just a moment to set the stage. We're not going to go through the entire passage verse by verse, but I want us to see a few things. Verse 4, this illness does not lead to death. Jesus said, this, this isn't going to lead to his, his death. He's, he's not going to die in the sense that you, the way you're thinking that he's, he's going to die when he's sick, he's, he's going to die, but I'm going to raise him again. Jesus knows what's going to happen. Verse 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. That's purposeful. Jesus is going with the intention of raising Lazarus. It's already been decided. Verses 14 and 15, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. Verse 23, very plainly, your brother will rise again. And then verse 25 through 27, those are the the resurrection words. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this And then her answer was, yes, Lord, I believe. So I, I want us to make sure we, we set the stage correctly because there are two things we have to understand to understand John 11. There are two keys to unlocking the meaning of this passage to make sure we're getting it correctly. Key number one, Jesus is not hiding the fact that he's going to raise Lazarus. He's very upfront about that. Even if they don't completely see that, even if they're not connecting the dots. What I want us to see in the text is that John, the author, is writing to show us that Jesus is going there purposefully to raise Lazarus. This is extremely important because when we get later in the, in the, in the passage, we don't want to make the mistake of thinking that this was an impromptu decision, that, that Jesus was, was moved emotionally or somehow uh, forced into raising him. This was his purpose. So that's one of the keys. Jesus went there with the intention of raising Lazarus. Number two, the desired effect of Jesus' miraculous raising of Lazarus was belief. Verse 
belief. I tried to emphasize those words as we went through the passage, and I think you could hear them pop a little bit. Believe, 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 over and over again. He just comes right out and says it. It's so that you may believe. So those are the two keys. It's, it's, it's not, this passage is not about friendship and human emotion, although those things are there. But that's not what this passage is about. That's not John's intended purpose. So remember those two keys. Jesus is going with the purpose of raising Lazarus, and this is about belief. The desired effect of the raising is belief. So now let's pick it up at verse 32. That was setting the stage. Verse 32, Jesus and Mary. Jesus is outside the village of Bethany, which was very close to uh, Jerusalem, but not, not quite. And he's just had a conversation with Martha where he's told them that he is the resurrection and the life. And she said that she believed. And now Mary, Martha's sister, who is also the sister of Lazarus. I think you'd, we're all probably aware of that if we're, aware of this, or if we're familiar with this passage. This, they're all siblings. Lazarus, Martha, Mary are all siblings. And Mary approaches Jesus and falls at his feet, and she expresses faith and disappointment. She expresses faith. She believed that Jesus could keep Lazarus from dying. Lord, if you had been here, I fully believe that you could have healed him. You have the power to heal and to um, the, the power over sickness. So that's faith. And then disappointment. She was disappointed at Jesus' timing. If only you'd been here sooner. You're a little late. He's already dead. But the disappointment is also tinged with a little unbelief, isn't it? I believe you could have done something if you were here while he was still alive, but now, hmm, not so much. We're not seeing that faith. We're seeing partway faith. We're seeing that she believes that he could heal the sickness, but we're not seeing faith over the dead. It might be frustrating for Jesus to see her lack of belief with all this emphasis on believe, believe, and believe, and then to hear her comment how her belief only extends to sickness and not to death. Verse 33, Jesus witnesses the weeping going on around him. Now in the ancient area, he's standing in the the Jerusalem and Israel, that, that area, Palestine, in the first century. Mourning was something that their culture did very loudly and noisily. And there, there were always some professional mourners that were high, hired. It was, it, it's like sending flowers to, to a funeral today. It's just something that was done. And even the poorest of the poor were expected to hire two flute players and one professional whaler. That was a minimum. So this was a noisy affair going on, but they were all wailing and weeping and mourning, not just the professionals. Look what the text says. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he, he's seeing Mary and, and Martha and, and all the other Jews are, are wailing and weeping and carrying on like pagans who have no hope. Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, is standing there, the Christ, the Son of God, standing in their midst, and they are filled with grief and hope. Now we have to be a little sympathetic. 
Yes, he has died. But on the other hand, we have to wonder, is this what partway faith looks like? And then it says, Jesus became deeply moved. Now, I'm going to take issue with that. Um, if you see the footnote down below, um, I think it also says, uh, it, it might have something different down, down below. No footnote. Deeply moved. The, the Greek word for, me, for this, this, uh, this phrase, they have translated as deeply moved, means angry, indignant, or outraged. Angry, indignant, or outraged. Not deeply moved. Not groaning in the spirit. But angry, indignant and outraged. The New Living Translation says, a deep anger welled up within him. I think that's a much more accurate translation. And most translations have sought to soften this language because it just seems so inappropriate for Jesus to be angry at a funeral. It seems so out of place for Jesus to be angry or outraged when his friends are mourning the loss of their, their brother and, and their friend. D.A. Carson, who is a contemporary, he's still alive, he's a New Testament scholar, says that attempts to soften this language are all without linguistic justification. In other words, there is no basis on translating this as deeply moved or groaning in the spirit. It's angry, indignant, or outraged. Those are your choices. Troubled meaning disturbed or agitated. So what is Jesus angry about? Their partway belief. This whole passage is about believe, believe, and believe. And these are some of the closest people to Jesus. And they're expressing partway belief. They're not yet trusting and believing him all the way. All they could do is invite Jesus into their circle of mourning. That's as far as their faith could take them. Come over here, weep with us, mourn with us. If only you'd been here sooner. Mm. But now, yeah, that's the way it goes. It's partway faith. They can see Lazarus recovering from sickness, but not walking out of the tomb. Jesus was not angry with them personally. He was angry with their partway belief. The partway belief in him as Jesus, Lord over life, Christ, the Son of God, with the power to raise the dead. That wasn't on their radar. The idea of, of Jesus raising the dead. Now, as we know, the resurrection and raising from the dead is a pretty big part of God's redemptive plan. If they're going to be a follower of Jesus with faith that goes all the way, they're going to start having to believe in resurrections. They're going to start having to believe that the Lord of life is able to raise people from the dead. So again, this is not saying that, that Jesus was deeply moved by their tears, and so in order to make them feel better and to, to be a good friend and to, to alleviate their mourning, he decides to resurrect Lazarus. No, it can't mean that, because we were shown earlier in the passage, he went there with the intention, remember that's one of the keys, he went there knowing he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. This is not an impromptu miracle. By any means. 
Verse 34, where have you laid him? He's not asking if he can go to the gravesite so he can mourn with them and continue grieving and join them. He's saying, this isn't over. Take me, where he, take me to the place where he's buried. This is not over yet. Verse 35, it's the shortest verse of the Bible. If you're starting scripture memory, this is a great place to start. John eleven thirty-five. Jesus wept. Why? Why is Jesus crying? Is it because Lazarus was dead? No. <laughs> Jesus knows that just in a few seconds, Lazarus is going to be walking around and everything's going to be fine. He's going to be in perfect health in just a few moments. He's not crying over Lazarus' death. In fact, earlier he said he was glad that he wasn't there. He's not crying over Lazarus' death. He's crying over their partway belief. Yes, he's weeping. Some of, some of this we have to attribute to general sin and death in the world. I'm sure Jesus was angry with the fact that sin has entered the world and that, that the people he loves even have to deal with death and sickness. But most of it, given the thrust of the passage, is on the partway belief. And also because he knows what will happen even after he performs the miracle. Tuck that away for just a moment. So after that, we have some reactions. They're mixed reactions, verses 36 and 37. Some of the Jews commented on the humanity of Jesus and his emotional attachment to Lazarus. Oh, look at him cry. He must have been really close to Lazarus. They must have been good friends. Nope, that's not why he's crying. Others were critical. Gave a blind man his sight back. You think he could have gotten here in time to save his friend? That's more partway belief. The possibility that Jesus knew what he was doing didn't even occur to them. The possibility that Jesus, as Lord of her life, was in complete control of this whole scenario was not on their radar. We move to Jesus at the tomb in verse 38. Jesus deeply moved again. And once more, read that angry, indignant, or outraged. We're given details about what kind of a tomb. It was a cave with a stone rolled against it, much like Jesus' tomb, where he would be laid. So this detail is to make sure we understand that this is a legitimate miracle. This was not some kind of play or act. Uh, Mary and Martha didn't say to the brother, okay, hurry up and get your grave clothes on. He'll be here any minute, and then call, he'll call you out. This was not staged He'd been in there for four days. No one had tampered with the tomb. It was real. Verse 39, Jesus issues a command. Take away the stone. That's a command. Do you remember as we went through Genesis, we, we haven't talked about it in a while, but we talked about it a few times in Genesis, something called a command fulfillment formula. Command, fulfillment, command, fulfillment. God says do this, and then the person he's speaking to does this exactly. And the words are written in scripture so we can see that pattern. God commands Abraham to offer his son Isaac. Next morning, Abraham rises to go take his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Command, fulfillment. Moses do this, Moses did that. Boom, 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 boom. Here's a command. Move away the gravestone. Command.
should be fulfillment right there, but instead we see Martha questioning Jesus' command. She mentions the length of time, the odor, he's been dead four days. Instead of fulfillment, instead of immediate obedience, which is why that command fulfillment is in the Bible so often, it's in there to show us that the proper response to God's command is immediate, immediate obedience. And here it is, and we got a breakdown. It's not there. Instead, we see Martha questioning Jesus' command. Instead, we see her indicating she doesn't think it's a good idea. No. This is more partway belief. Jesus answers her in verse 40, and not gently, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now, kids, when, when mom and dad talk to you, and they start off with, didn't I tell you? And then whatever comes after it, are they happy with you right then? No, they're not pleased with you. And they're not pleased with you because they're having to repeat themselves. And they don't like to repeat themselves. They want you to obey the first time. And that's a good thing. They want you to respect and obey them immediately. And what they're doing ultimately is they're training you in righteousness. Because God has put them in authority over you. And as you grow older, you eventually move out of their house. And you won't be under their authority there will just be God. And if you don't respect and obey your parents now, you're less likely to respect and obey the authority of God later. So that's a good thing that they're teaching you that. They're teaching you to obey the first time. That's how Jesus starts. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? I think we might be able to hear some quiet whispers of that indignant anger coming through. I mean, after all, isn't this the same Martha who just a few moments ago told Jesus, I believe. I believe you are the Son of God. I believe everything you're saying. I believe in the resurrection. Now she's counseling him not to roll the stone away because it's probably a bad idea. Verse 41, they took away the stone. And then Jesus says this, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. The whole purpose of this raising, miraculous raising of Lazarus is so that people will believe. Not partway belief, all the way belief. So that the people standing around, who's standing around? Mary, Martha, the other Jews, the disciples, they're all standing around. I'm doing this so that they believe all the way. Verse 33 and 4, uh, 30, 43 and 44, Jesus commands Lazarus to come out with a loud voice, and he does. Command fulfillment. Immediately, still wearing the grave clothes. And then we see the reactions. Verse 45, this is yet another marker that tells us that this passage is all about belief. It says, some of the Jews who saw what Jesus did believed in him. They believed. Verse 46, but some of them who saw what Jesus did went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. They did not believe. 
Remember earlier when I said part of his anger is because he knows what's coming next? That's, that's what this is. This is the next. Even after Jesus, the Son of God, is standing right in front of them and he raises a dead man back to life, they still don't believe. All the way faith, not partway faith. How far does our faith go? How far does our belief go? Partway or all the way? We believe that Jesus can forgive our sins? Yes. Praise God. Do we also believe that he can not only forgive your sins, but give you victory over the power of sin in your life? Do you believe that he can actually set you free from persistent habitual sin? That's all the way faith. And it impacts how we act. It impacts how we respond. If we have this kind of partway faith, I know my sins are forgiven, I know my sins are forgiven, but we don't have that all the way faith that believes he can actually give us freedom from some of these persistent sins in this life, then what? Then we're more likely to say, well, you know, I know I'm forgiven, praise God, but this is always going to be with me, so I guess I'm just going to give into it one more time. We're less likely to attack it we're less likely to put up a fight if our faith doesn't go all the way and we believe we have freedom. We believe Jesus can save us, praise God. We also believe Jesus can save the unbelieving family member that's been an unbeliever their whole life and has been hostile to the gospel. We believe our, we, our salvation is possible. Do we believe their salvation is possible? The one who last Thanksgiving you tried to make inroads with and they bit your head off? You know, Uncle Ralph that's, that's been uh, an unbeliever his whole life? It impacts how we behave. If, if we believe yes, then we're going to attack it and we're going to continue. We're going to keep praying for that person. We're going to pray for Uncle Ralph. We're going to bring him the gospel again. If not, we might shrug our shoulders and say, well, I tried. I gave him the gospel. He didn't want to hear it. Maybe he's beyond saving. Maybe it's too late for him. How far does our faith go? This passage teaches us that our belief in Jesus, the type of faith that goes all the way, is important to him. It is important to him. Jesus does not want his sheep to doubt him or to have weak faith or to have partway faith, he expects them to believe all the way. Anything less than all the way, it's partway. And I don't know where everyone is at, obviously. We can't look into people's hearts. I don't know what you're going through. It could be relational conflict. It could be uh, difficulty at work, job, job stuff. It could be marital difficulty. It could be rebellious children. It could be persistent sin in your life. It could be financial problems. I don't think it's uncommon for every Christian at some point in their life to reach a sort of crossroads. 
where they've been walking with Jesus, but, but something is pressing in on them so much that they, they are starting to become paralyzed with fear or anxiety or, or worry or frustration. And, and I don't think it's uncommon to, to come to this crosswords where we, we look in the mirror and we all of a sudden come to the realization of, of Jesus' lordship and his power and our faith takes a turn in the right direction. And we ask, is Jesus Lord or not? Does he have the power over this sickness that's, that's attacking my body? Does he have the power over this work issue? Does he have this power over our marriage, our kids, or not? And we believe with all the way faith. Here's the action point. Confess any unbelief. Confess any doubt. Confess any lack of confidence in God's power and ability to accomplish anything, confess it and put it far away. And I, I'm not, again, I'm not reading hearts. There may be somebody sitting here today, I have all the way belief, praise God. That's the challenge of, of, of preaching. We don't know who's uh, out there, we don't know where they're at. But if that in any way describes you, confess that unbelief, confess that partway faith. Tell Jesus in prayer, say, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I haven't gone all the way. We're thankful that we are on this side of the cross and we've been given so much light. We're thankful that Jesus has, like Lazarus, raised us from spiritual death. He's called us out. We're thankful that we are his people, his sheep, through the power of the gospel. The resurrection of Lazarus points us to, to our new life in Christ, that when he calls us spiritually, we're, we're born again and we're, we're given a new life. And when Jesus calls us, there's no resisting. When he calls us, we're, we're raised to new life. And this is what we're thankful of. This is number one. And here's, here's the tie-in to Thanksgiving. The number one thing we can be thankful for at any given time is our salvation is the fact that Jesus has called us out of the tomb. Just a few days ago, maybe a couple of weeks ago, we had the Presbytery meeting, and there was a man who got up and shared his story, and he said uh, at some point between now and, and the last meeting, both he and his dad had contracted COVID, and they had a bat. They, they, were, they were out. And he said, I did not know if I was going to survive. I did not know if my dad was going to survive. And he said, when he was laying there in, in pain, the thing that became most precious to him was the gospel. That's what flooded his field of vision. That, that's what buoyed him and kept him afloat, was just keep coming back to the forgiveness that he had in Jesus Christ. And then his dad died, and he turned a corner and lived. I don't think we need to get there to understand and appreciate the precious nature of the gospel and how that is the number one thing we are thankful for at any given time. Praise God and thank Him. He has called that th and thank Him that He has called you to new life and to believe in Jesus with a faith that goes all the way. Amen.